Hi, this is Dr. Kimberly Leonard. You're listening to Incredible Life Creator Podcast. My guest today is Frank King. Frank King, suicide prevention speaker and trainer, was a writer for The Tonight Show for 20 years. Depression and suicide run in his family. He's thought about killing himself more times than he can count. He's fought a lifetime battle with major depressive disorder and chronic suicidality, turning that long, dark journey of the soul into the five TEDx talks and sharing his life-saving insights on mental health awareness with associations, corporations, and colleges. A motivational public speaker who uses his life lessons to start the conversation, giving people permission to give voice to their feelings and experiences surrounding depression and suicide, and doing it by coming out, as it were, and standing in his truth and doing it with humor. He believes that where there is humor, there is hope, and where there is laughter, there is life. Nobody dies laughing. The right person at the right time with the right information can save a life. Welcome to the podcast, Frank. Welcome, and that's all the time we have for today, so thank you very much. (laughs) (laughs) That is awesome. So we met through a a mutual friend, Amy Lyle. Oh, Amy. Oh, my God. Yes, and I know she has a TEDx talk coming up if she hasn't already done it already. Yes, has she and done her you TEDx know, talk yet, or she just well, got accepted? Uh, let's see. I think, I think she may have recorded it virtually. I don't know. Uh, do you want the backstory on? Yeah. Amy? Okay. Yes. So Amy and I met on LinkedIn. So we're chatting away, and I was actually at the scene of my fifth TEDx talk, Durango, Colorado, at the time. And Amy said, oh, I wish I'd met you two weeks ago. I didn't know you coached TEDx. I just I just signed up with a company for a huge amount of money to, to get a TEDx. And so I said, oh, how much did you pay? And she told me, and I thought, wow, I am way underpriced. <laughs> so I have thousands and thousands of dollars to thank Amy for. Mm-hmm. So fast forward, uh, a couple of months later, I got an, a phone call from her. And she had applied with the help of this company for 88 zero TEDx talks and no auditions, no callbacks, no talks. And she was practically in tears. And I said, well, Amy, it's a good topic. It's a great idea. You've got a bestseller on failure on Amazon in a category where there's some other pretty well-known authors. I just can't understand why they won't pick you. I said, well, send me your you know, the stuff you put on your application that the company had cobbled together for her. And I'm sure all the, all the I's were dotted, the T's were crossed, but it wasn't really, it didn't really sing. Mm-hmm. I said, well, do you mind if I tinker with it? So she goes, no, fine. So bear in mind, she said 80 tries at this point. So I tinkered with it, you know, added my little creative touch, a little humor. And within five applications, she got that TEDx up in Massachusetts. <laughs> so that's, uh, but yeah, I really, I had, not, I had no idea until I talked to Amy how much people charge to help other people get a TEDx. And I'm not charging as much, but still, I would not be where I am. Uh, I've got 13 TEDx coaching clients, and I would say the majority of those are thanks to Amy Lyle. Mm-hmm. Yes. And um, Amy Lyle was actually on this podcast about a year ago. And she has her own show, so yep, I've been on. Wants to look up her show, they they can, and um, a very funny show because she's also a comedian. Correct. Yep, that's so. something else we had in common. Uh, yeah, the Burbs. Something about the Burbs, and yeah. I've been on in the, the Burbs. The Burbs. Yes. Yep. 
yeah. in the burbs. So she so, had me on. Yeah. But just so people can get to know you, why don't you talk about yourself, where you started out, how you got to be doing what you're doing now? My favorite subject, Kimberly, <laughs> me. Everybody's favorite subject. <laughs> that is, that's what, uh, was it that, I think, um, was it uh, not W. Clement Stone? Who wrote um, When Friends and Inf Dale Carnegie said, everybody's favorite subject. I think it was Dale Carnegie. Yes, it themselves. was. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's good advice, by the way. I When I meet somebody, I always ask leading questions. I never really say much about myself unless they ask. I've done four hour, five hour plane flights. And finally, as we're landing, they go, what do you do? And I go, <laughs> I'm a comedian. They go, you're not that funny. I said, well, I'm off the clock. <laughs> Get your checkbook out. We'll yuck it up. Uh, so anyway, I started comedy in the fourth grade. I told a joke uh, with the help of my teacher. She didn't know she was helping me being my straight woman, but she was. Mm -hmm. And all, everybody in the class laughed. And, and she excused herself to go to the teacher's lounge. And years later, her name Mrs. Dark. I saw her in the Winn-Dixie. I'm from the South. That, that's a big uh, grocery store chain. At least it mm -hmm. was at the time. And Ms. Dark said, Frank, do you know why I excused myself to go to the teacher's lounge that morning after everybody started laughing? I said, Ms. Dark, I have no idea. She said, because what you said to me was the funniest thing a child had ever said to me before or since. And I was afraid if I laughed in your face, I'd break your heart. Aww. Yep. So I decided at that moment in fourth grade, I was going to be a comedian. And then, then in 12th grade, I had been taking three years of drama mm -hmm. and never gotten a good part, always in the chorus. Mm -hmm. And so... I thought to myself, second semester, senior year, I think I see a pattern here. And they just so happened we're having a senior talent show, do it once a year, obviously. And I thought, you know what? If I do stand up, I can write, direct, produce, and star on my own little show every night. Mm -hmm. First person ever, this is 1975, the spring of 75, first person ever to do stand up at the senior talent show. You know, mostly it was accordion players and folk dancers and that kind right. of thing. <laughs> and so, yeah, it wasn't a tough, it wasn't a tough contest to win. So I won it. And then I told my mama, I'm going to be a comedian. And my mother comes from a long line of uh, college educated folks. And she goes, son, you're going to college first. I don't care what you do when you get done. You can be a goat herder for all I care, but you son are going to be a goat herder with a college degree. <laughs> so I went to UNC Chapel Hill, four years, BABS, graduated. My high school and college sweetheart and I moved to San Diego. Uh, to get married we should never have gotten married we had nothing in common but you know what they say opposites attract she was pregnant i wasn't so <laughs> so we moved to san diego and just by chance and i was working in the insurance business because that was her vision for me and was not doing what i thought i should be doing going to open mic night there was a branch of the world famous comedy store the one up on sunset in la in san diego la jolla it's a little suburb mm -hmm. and they had two open mic nights a week and it was killing me not going and I realized at some point, because I live with major depressive disorder and chronic suicidal ideation, that if I didn't change something and quickly, I was going to kill myself sooner rather than later. Because I was not, you know, my wife was lovely, but not, not meant to be together. Insurance is a great business, but it really wasn't for me. And, and so my second thought was, well, wait a minute. I could quit my job, divorce my wife, try comedy, if it works, great. If it doesn't, I can still kill myself. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah, that's why that, that's the that's the subject of my fourth TED talk, Suicide the Secret of My Success, Dead Man Talking. Mm -hmm. So 
And I, I thought, as many people with mental illness do, that I'm the only person in the world ever had those thoughts. Well, I've met a number of comedians, other entertainers, entrepreneurs, who had the very same thought process. They're living a life they, they're sure that is not theirs with people they sh really shouldn't be with. And they, they've got this dream. And they, they realize, if I don't change, I'm going to kill myself. Well, what the heck? You know, there are a few things more powerful on the planet than somebody with absolutely nothing to lose. If I stayed put, I'd die. If I tried comedy, it might work. Mm -hmm. If it didn't, you know, I could still kill myself. So suicide, sadly, is one of my superpowers. I went up on stage. I did five minutes. And inside my head, I heard this. You're home. I've only heard that several times, three times in my life, but I knew, I knew I was in the right place, right time. And my second thought was, I'm going to do this for a living. I have no idea how. And if I'd known how hard it was to make a living doing stand-up comedy, I might never have tried it. I thought about doing a keynote called, what could you do if you didn't know no better? Which <laughs> I didn't know how hard it was. I was just, you know, uh -huh. so, so December of 85, I said to my girlfriend, my first wife and I had split up said to my girlfriend, I'm going on the road to do stand-up comedy professionally. Do you want to come along? Fully anticipating, she'd go, oh, hell no. And she goes, yeah. So we quit our job, put all our stuff in storage, jumped in my little tiny Dodge Colt. Mm -hmm. Wow. Tiny, yeah, with no air conditioning, because we live in California. You don't need air conditioning in a car in California. Mm -hmm. And we were on the road together, 2,629 nights in a row, nonstop, no home seven years and change and that was in the mid 80s to the mid 90s and so we worked with and stayed with lived with seinfeld dennis miller ellen rosie dana carvey kevin nealon adam sandler so forth and so on back when they were just comics and then i did some radio in my old hometown of raleigh i got invited to to apply for a job at a rock station in raleigh north carolina which gave me an opportunity to come off the road because the comedy thing was beginning to wind down the club thing and that lasted 18 months. Uh, I took a number one morning show and drove it all the way to number six in 18 months. <laughs> yeah, didn't just drive it into the ground. I drove it into Middle Earth. And I decided because my act was clean that I could uh, jump to the corporate comedy market, you know, the rubber chicken circuit after dinner, after lunch. And mm -hmm. I did. And I made really good money. You, the um, people asked me, what's the difference between club comedy and corporate comedy? About $5,000 a day plus travel. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I made that good money until the recession started. And then business began to drop off. You know, you can't lay off a couple hundred people and hire a comedian for the Christmas party. It's not, you know, it just yeah. doesn't look good. So uh, by 2010, business off 80%. We lost everything in a chapter seven bankruptcy. And that's when I learned what the barrel of my gun tasted like. Literally. Uh, spoiler alert, if you're listening, uh, did not pull the trigger. I... Before the COVID, a friend of mine was at a keynote. He never heard me say I didn't pull the trigger. He came up afterwards. He goes, hey, man, how come you didn't pull the trigger? I go, hey, man, could you try to sound slightly less disappointed? If you want to know, I'll spare you the details, but it's in my first TED Talk called A Matter of Laugh or Death. Laugh or Death. It's in there. And so, yeah, I didn't pull the trigger. And when the bookings began to pick up again, the meeting planner said, Frank, we love you dearly but we can't pay you that kind of money just to be funny. You need to teach our audience something. And I was just, I, I'd always wanted to do that. I'd always wanted to make a living being funny and make a difference. But what do I have to teach anybody? So after, after coming that close to dying by suicide and looking at my family history, it's called generational depression and suicide. 
my grandmother died by suicide. My mother found her. My great aunt died by suicide. My mother and I found her. I was four years old. I screamed for days. It's also in my first TEDx talk. I'll spare your listeners the triggering of that. I thought, oh, and everybody in my family, except for one cousin, is nuttier than a squirrel turd. It runs in a family. So I thought, you know what I could do? I could get some training in suicide prevention and I could speak on suicide prevention, you know, tell my lived experience stories and then teach the audience something about suicide prevention. And what I discovered was when I was preparing for the first TEDx talk, hardly anybody says the words depression and suicide out loud. It's not, as my mother would say, you don't talk about that in polite company. Mm -hmm. However, I discovered if you mention the words depression and suicide, almost everybody has a story they want to share. It's like they've just been waiting for somebody to utter the magic words. And so that led me to believe, well, if people aren't talking about it, I bet you they'll pay me to start the conversation. And that's exactly what my clients say to me. We just brought you in here to start the conversation on suicide because by going up on stage and being vulnerable, which is another superpower, I just read mm -hmm. Brene Brown's book on vulnerability mm -hmm. about halfway through and I thought, vulnerability, that's one of my superpowers. Yes. If I go up and be vulnerable, this is a man because men don't talk about that kind of thing. Mm -hmm then other people have permission to give voice to their feelings and experiences surrounding depression, thoughts of suicide without recrimination. Mm -hmm. I do my talk 45 minutes. I do 15 Q and a, and I tell the audience, look, if you got something you want to ask or say, you don't want to say in front of the entire audience, I'll hang around till, you know, I've talked to everybody. And sometimes there's two people lined up. Sometimes there's eight. Mm -hmm. So I hang out and I, um, and so suicide prevention speaking has become my, well, it is my purpose and my passion. Mm -hmm. And it's very therapeutic. Somebody asks, does it trigger you to tell your story? No, it's very therapeutic. And here's why. With chronic suicidal ideation, every keynote I've given since 2016, except for one, there's been somebody in the audience who has chronic suicidality or chronic suicidal ideation. They don't know it has a name. They think they're just some kind of freak because of the way their brain works and they're all alone. And a young woman come up after a college presentation. She goes, thanks for your keynote. I said, you're welcome. She goes, but I got to tell you, it made me weep. How did it make you weep? She goes, you know, you're, oh, I tell this story. Here's chronic suicidal ideation in a nutshell. Because I and people in my tribe, suicide is always an option on the menu as a solution for problems large and small. And I said, small, my car broke down a couple of years ago. I had three thoughts unbidden get it fixed, buy a new one, or I could just kill myself. That's chronic suicidal ideation. So she says, you know your story about the car? Get it fixed, buy a new one, just kill yourself. She goes, I've been having those thoughts all my life. I didn't know that had a name. I thought I was some kind of freak. And when I heard you say that out loud, I realized for the first time in my life that I'm not alone and I wept. Bingo. So that's that's what gets me out of bed in the morning. That's my why. It's um, People ask me, how'd you pick suicide as a topic? Well... Tell you the truth, topic pick me. Mm -hmm. It's not a club anybody wants to join, but you know, it just it's I'm hardwired for it. So sharing my story allows other people to do the same. And and that's yeah, I I I feel for people who have not found a purpose and a passion because I go to bed thinking about it, I get up thinking about it, I I don't have to push, I don't have to, you know, I mean, it's like the it's like when you find your purpose and your passion, the universe goes, Oh, you finally got here. Let's see if we can help you. Mm -hmm. I've met people. Um, a friend of mine said to me, you should join the association, American Association of Suicidology. 
just for the networking benefit. So I paid my 50 bucks, I joined. This morning, I got an email from the program director for the annual national convention. Would you consider doing a 15 minute TED style talk at the opening general session in front of 2000 people? Hmm, let's see. <laughs> <laughs> yeah and so it, it's those kind of opportunities that seem to just i, I meet i meet the right people uh get the right opportunities it's something about getting aligned with your purpose and your passion has a certain power to it i guess is what i'm trying to say so yeah it's it's I, and and i had other speeches networking speech motivational speech but 2018 january i thought you know what no i'm gonna pick a lane i'm just gonna be a suicide prevention speaker <clears throat> again that made a huge difference because you know you're a meeting planner if it's a suicide prevention keynote you want, then if you go to my website, it screams just that and only that. You know, well, this is this must be the guy. <laughs> so yeah, so it's um that that that's how I got into making a living and a difference was I came close to ending my life. And that was the pivot point, I guess, for the or the, oh, and my wife said the, the, the difficulty was, Kimberly, I'm a, I've been a funny guy for 30 years at this point when I make this shift and I have to rebrand because nobody, nobody knows I can speak on a serious topic. So that's why my wife goes, get a TEDx talk. And I said famously, what's a TEDx talk? <laughs> yeah. And I got an email that week from a TEDx up in Vancouver, British Columbia. And they said, you know, would you like to apply? Sure. So I applied and I got my first one on the first application. And, mm -hmm. and nobody in my family... None of my friends, my wife, nobody had any idea I was living with two mental illnesses. I came out on stage at age 56 at that TEDx as depressed and suicidal. Matter of fact, when it posted on YouTube, my wife's about to hit play. I said, hold on. I need to tell you about a half dozen things you don't know about me. And I don't want you to learn it watching the YouTube video. And, you know, she's like, oh, my God. So, yeah, because, you know, people with mental illness tend to cover it up. I'm a great actor. I've got a Screen Actors Guild card for a reason. And because we don't want to burden other people. And especially with uh, the mention of suicide out loud scares the bejesus out of neurotypical people. Because mm -hmm. A, either they don't know what to say, so they don't say anything. Or B, they don't say anything because they're afraid they're going to say the wrong thing. My favorite is, well, I, I didn't think I was supposed to mention the word suicide in front of somebody who was depressed. And why not? I love this. Because it might give you the idea. Suicide? What a great idea. <laughs> Come, I didn't think of that. Anyway, that, that, are you thinking about it? Yeah, that, uh, I apologize. Such a long, you know, we, we just covered like 40 years of my life. Um, yes, yes. But so, yeah, I'm a, I'm a comedian by trade. I'm a comedian. Somebody said, Tell me about yourself. I'm a comedian. No, not what you do, who you are. Well, at the risk of being redundant, I am a comedian. That's the way I, that's the way I think. I can teach you, I can teach you to write stand up, I can teach you to perform stand up. What I cannot do is teach you how to process the incoming information the way I do. And I think that's all part of my, I believe my depression and thoughts of suicide are the flip side of my creativity, you know, um, uh, comedic ability, imagination. I think it's all one big, matter of fact, my third TEDx was mental with benefits, the evolutionary advantages of mental illness. Because everybody I've ever met who's not completely dysfunctional with mental illness seems to have a, at least one other superpower, great writers, comedians, singers, artists, you know. So anyway, that's a long, long, <laughs> long answer to a short question. Sorry about that, Kimberly. Yeah. So if let's say there's someone, they do have this cycle of depression, they are thinking about killing themselves on a regular basis. How 
would you talk to them to help them to choose to live more day? Or you mean if somebody said they were suicidal? Yes. Well, let's um, let's back up just a second, if you don't mind. Um, let's talk about the signs of depression, because that's that's where it usually begins. And the importance of this, by the way, the conversation we're about to have is this. You hear people oftentimes say he died by suicide. We had no idea. He never gave us any clues. There were no hints. OK, I, there probably were clues. There probably were hints. And here's why. Eight out of 10 people on average who are suicidal are ambivalent. They want somebody to notice something and interrupt. And nine out of 10 give hints in the last week leading up to an attempt, direct, indirect, verbal, nonverbal, behavioral. So what you have to do is the hints are there if you know what to look and listen for. So that's why I start with depression. So give me a couple of signs somebody may be depressed. Here's two of the big ones. Have trouble getting up in the morning rally in the afternoon. So let's say you're doing your Zoom thing from home and you, you know, the group gets together once a day. And in the beginning, you did it in the morning and the person was constantly late. So you shifted it to the afternoon and you log on, they're there bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. It may be they're having trouble dragging themselves out of bed in the morning. The other one you can actually notice on Zoom is letting your personal hygiene go. I mean, there's COVID casual, you know, it's a, I'm not wearing a tie and jacket, but the shirt's clean. They, you know, the hair's a little dirty. Clothes don't look like they've been washed in a while. It may be because they're struggling to get out of bed in the morning, get to the bathroom to do their, you know, their shave, shower, whatever, and simply run a load of wash. Mm -hmm. So those are two symptoms. Here's what you don't say to somebody you think is depressed. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Turn that frown upside down. Have you tried fish oil? <sighs> Can't tell you how many times. Uh, here's what you do say. Look, I'm here for you and I mean it. I know you're not crazy, lazy, or self-absorbed. I know that depression is a mental illness. Here's the good news. With time and treatment, things will get better. I will take the time. I will help you get the treatment. And here's the biggie. You have to ask this. And if you can't ask this, you find somebody who can. You have to ask them, are you having thoughts of suicide? Just like that. If they, let's say they're not forthcoming about their thoughts of suicide, but you still suspect, how would you know? Well, there are signs talking about death and dying. You catch them Googling death and dying. Death and dying appears as a theme in their artwork, their music, their writing, putting their affairs in order, including, and this is very dangerous, giving away prized possessions because they want to make sure they go to the people they want them to go to when they're gone. Here's a counterintuitive one that I find extremely dangerous. They've been depressed forever and all of a sudden they're happy for no reason. And you're happy because thank God they're finally happy. Well, they may be happy because they've chosen time, place, and method, and they know the pain is finite. A lot of people don't realize that most suicides are all about pain. People say, why would he want to kill himself? Chances are he didn't. Chances are he or she simply wanted to end the pain. Now, let's say they do say they're having thoughts of suicide. What do you say? Well, do you have a plan? If they have a plan, what is your plan? If it's detailed, time, place, method, need to do your best to get them on the phone with the suicide prevention lifeline. Or if they're younger, you can text the word help to 741-741. It's a text line because, you know, younger people tend to be more forthcoming in text. If they are an immediate danger to themselves or other people, you have to call 911. That's, that's the threshold. If they're an immediate danger to themselves or somebody else, you have to call 911. Now, let's say they, they having thoughts of suicide, have a plan, but it's not particularly well formed. You know, don't really have time, place, method. 
what do you what do you say well and this is not in any psychology book anywhere a psychiatrist friend and i cobbled this together i would say to them well tell me you're going to kill yourself and if they say no and i think this is the most important question tell me why not make them give voice to whatever's keeping them here and if you ask me kimberly why not i have a variety of reasons but one uh, we've already talked about i, I kind of feel like george bailey and it's a wonderful life I've been showing what people's lives would be like if I were not there to speak and reassure them that they're not, in fact, alone. So if I killed myself, I would take all those people with me who never got a chance for me to say, no, it's a thing. You're not alone. There's lots of us. So that would be my reason. One of my reasons why I would. So now, now I'm stuck here. I cannot commit suicide. <laughs> because i'm so because, glad you're stuck here <laughs> oh thank you well, so there are a lot of people who are some are not but that's another story so that that is the protocol that's what i teach by the way that's what i learned that's the teaching part of my keynote is those because it's called gatekeeper training gatekeeper you watch everybody go by as a gatekeeper and you're looking for and listening for those tells that they may be depressed or having thoughts of suicide and once it's 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 like once you, somebody points those things out to you, you can't not hear or see them after that. And it's because, like I said, eight out of 10 people, ambivalent. Nine out of 10, give hints. So the good news is you can make a difference. You can save a life and you can do it by doing something as simple as what we're doing here. And that's being brave and starting the conversation. Thank you. And so as you were telling your story, you named all these comedians that most people know. Yeah. Yeah. So do you have any good stories? I'm oh, sure, you know, yeah, any good stories. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I wrote for Leno for a long time and uh, people don't know this about Jay. He's got a, well, maybe they, maybe they figured this out. An amazing work ethic. I mean, he slept little when he did this night show for real, when he had the gig, he, you know, they film in the afternoon around 4 35 o'clock and so it only takes an hour you know because it's in real time and then he would go to burbank airport which is not that far away from nbc climb on a plane go to vegas do one show that night pick up a check for two hundred fifty thousand dollars, fly home uh because he just has this amazing work ethic when he got out of community college he had an aa in auto mechanics so he went to the local rolls royce dealership to apply for a job and the, whoever the HR person was, was very nice and said, look, Jay, I, you know, I, I appreciate your interest in Rolls Royce, but that's not exactly the way it works with us. You know, you have to be accepted to go to England to study at the Rolls Royce school or whatever. And it's, it's quite a lengthy process. And then you come back and you have the probationary period, whatever. So Jay thanked him. And he noticed as he was leaving that all of the mechanics were in the same blue jumpsuit. So he went to a a uh, uniform store, bought the same blue jumpsuit, went to someplace else, bought a little lunchbox. And the next morning when they opened the gates on the service area, Jay walked in his little blue jumpsuit with everybody else. And, <laughs> yeah, and kind of wandered around a little bit until, you know, kind of like down the, the line of bays where the cars were being worked on. Until he got to one where he heard the guy, some guy under the hood cussing up a storm, obviously having difficulty. So he walks over, he looks into the, you know, into the, the car under the hood and says, yeah, you know, they uh, sent me over here to help you. <laughs> and the guy goes, thank God I could use the help. So they're both under the hood about lunchtime. Jay says he can hear the 
the um, the uh, car, you know, the the service manager and the dealership manager coming across the parking lot, and what they're saying to each other is, "No, you hired him. I didn't hire him. No, you hired him. I didn't hire him." The guy, the mechanic who works there, pulls his head out from under the hood and goes, "Listen, I don't care who hires him. The kid is good, and I need the help." <laughs> That's how he got his first job working on Rolls Royces without having to go to England to get trained. That's just the kind of guy. Now, somebody asked about his worst gig. It was a strip club in Memphis called the Mineshaft. He gets there. He's a comic. Yeah, doing. I've done comedy in strip clubs. It's very difficult. He gets there and the woman goes, it's uh, $5 or $10. And Jay goes, well, I'm the comedian. I don't have to pay, but I'm just curious. What's with the five and 10? She goes, $5 gets you in. $10 gets you one of these miners caps with a flashlight on the front. And sure enough, Jay goes in and the place is completely pitch black dark, except for these guys with the hat with the flashlight. <laughs> that's how they see the stripper. They turn the flashlight toward the stripper, whichever one they want to watch. And they had Jay actually working, telling jokes on another platform while the young women were, were doing their <laughs> strip. He says he knew he had a great joke when all the helmets would turn toward him. They bob up and down the flashlights as they're laughing and then back to the strippers. That's the kind of, yeah, I, I was on the road all that time and they were week long clubs. There was the improvs and funny bones, you know, really nice clubs. Mm -hmm. And then there were the horrible, you know, beer bar, pool hall, honky tonk, one nighters with drunks screaming, tell us some jokes we can dance to. Okay. Here comes a slow one. You can slow dance. Yeah. It's people ask me about doing, people ask me about doing comedy on zoom. Cause there's nobody in the room with you. I go, look, mm -hmm. I did all these one nighters. Some of them where they didn't advertise, you know, like 200, 200 seats, five people show up. I've spent evenings talking to furniture. So staring into a camera in my living room is a piece of cake. I can fake, you know, I laugh at my own jokes. I can make it, you know? So yeah, it's um, the, uh, and, and by the way, all those comics I mentioned, Foxworthy, Ron White, we didn't just work together. Back then they put you up in a three bedroom. They called it the comedy condo. And so you, you would do the show, come home, pop a beer and watch, you know, the late night comedy shows together. So we hung out. Um, you know, and my, my lovely wife, um, it was like living in a frat house for her. Cause most of the comics were guys, but they, mm -hmm. they came to like her a lot. You know, if it, uh, I can't, I don't have time to have dinner and iron my pants. My wife would go, I got the iron, have some dinner. So they got to wear, <laughs> and we were sort of the junior ward cleaver of comedy because we were married on the road together. We were vegetarians, eat health food, went to the gym every day. Mm -hmm. And there were comics near the end of this period that would say to their manager, look, I need three weeks for Frank and Wendy. I need to eat good, go to the gym, get some rest. <laughs> so they'd sign on to our rehab program. Mm -hmm. And yeah, because, you know, comics, the they have a higher rate of suicide than comics, entertainers, creative types. So I actually have a podcast called the Suicide Prevention Punchline based on the Suicide Prevention Lifeline because so many comics die by suicide. We have comics on, we talk about their struggles, how they're coping, have clinicians on to offer, you know, advice on coping. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's, um, but I, again, I think the, the connection is the mental illness, you know, it's that mental illness, mental ableness, you know, the, what, to what, like I said, the flip side of my depression, suicide, suicide thoughts is simply my creativity. Mm -hmm. so. Yeah. So how did you get to be a writer for the tonight show? Ah, Jay got the job as permanent guest host for Johnny. And Johnny was, you know, he was top of the top of his game and a bit mercurial. He would say to the staff on a Friday night, I'm taking next week off. 
which meant Monday was always what's called best of cars, and it was a rerun. That meant Jay had four nights, Tuesday through Friday, four monologues, 18 jokes per monologue, and he had to get those jokes cobbled together over the weekend. So he got to the point where he was hiring road comics like me uh, as contractors. You sign the contractor paperwork, they give you a fax number, and I was faxing in a dozen, two dozen jokes a day. And so were a bunch of other guys. And, and then when he got the Tonight Show for real, they cut most of the contractors loose, but for whatever reason, they kept me on. And the dream was, Kimberly, and this happened to a couple of people. When Jay was a guest host, everybody's figuring when he gets the job for real, and everybody thought he would get it over Letterman, then some of us would get plucked from obscurity, you know, as contractors and plop down into the writing team in-house at NBC and join the guild and all that. I, I, never, I never made it that far, but it was good practice. It's a great way to keep your comedy muscle, you know, in tone by writing 12, 24 jokes a day. And I had two jokes on his very first show when he took over for Johnny. And that, that was probably the highlight of my career with uh, Jay. And he's a really nice guy. When the Tonight Show ended for him, I called him up and said, hey, would you do a little video for me, you know, kind of pimping my corporate comedy or whatever? And he goes, yeah, you know, I just, I'm going over CNBC. They don't like uh, doing video, but that will do. He said, I'll tell you what I will do. If you get a chance to get a, like another morning show or some huge opportunity, and it's down to you and somebody else, one other person, call Helga, his personal assistant, give her the name and phone number, and I'll, I'll call him up and see if I can't strong arm him into giving you the job. <laughs> so I've had that in my pocket for quite some time. I'm waiting for just the right opportunity to, um, and I may ask him to write the forward to one of our men's mental health books. We've got a series of four men's mental health books. I'm putting together co-author with a psychologist and a therapist. So I may ask him if he would write the, or just blurb the cover, you know, just, just a blurb from him for the cover would be great. I'd be willing to burn my, my one favor for that. Beautiful. And then um, let's talk about you training people for TEDx. So you talked about, we talked a little bit about Amy and how you kind of tweaked her message, but there's gotta be, is, is it just the message or how, how do people well, get on these stages? Uh, first of all, they don't make it easy. The, it's difficult to find the links to apply. So for my clients, I provide them, you know, many, many links to apply. And then in the application process, they, they try to discourage people by saying things like on the application, who do you want to nominate? That threw me the first time. I'm like, who am I, get, who am I going to get to nominate me? And then I realized you can always nominate yourself. So mm -hmm. first hurdle cleared. And then if you go to the official TEDx event page on TED.com, there's no way to get to that link. Again, I teach people how to either I send them a link or teach them how to find the links to apply. You find the links. Now, the last two TED Talks I did, I've been chosen seven times. Two of them I couldn't make for because I had booking conflicts. But the last two, the fourth one was suicide, the secret of my success, dead man talking. And then my idea, and they called me up and said, you know, this is, um, this is Pens uh, Ted TEDx Pensacola. And we want you to, you know, participate in the TEDx. And I said, do you mean you want me to audition? They go, no, no <laughs> title and subtitle. And your idea is good enough. You're going to be on. And the last one that I did same story. It was called mental health and the orgasm treat your depression single-handedly. Mm -hmm. And again, they said, no, no audition, you're on. Mm -hmm. Which told me after talking to Amy that 
that because these committees get hundreds and hundreds of applications, I talked to a woman who used to be on the committee in Seattle for Seattle TEDx. She said, Frank, we got 600 applications a year. So it occurred to me that, that you have to clear that second hurdle, which is not getting thrown in the no pile right away if you want an audition. And I believe that comes down to what you put in those first boxes on the application, whether it's a really killer you know, title subtitle or sometimes they want a 10 word elevator pitch or two sentences to, you know, as an overview of your idea. So whatever you put in those boxes, that's going to determine who gets the audition. Mm -hmm. So that's like with Amy, what her applications needed was a creative touch. They needed to sparkle. They need to be sticky. Mm -hmm. They needed to make you want to read on. So I tell the, I tell my clients, look, pick a title that is a little obscure. You really don't know exactly kind of got an idea what it means, but which forces you to read the subtitle. And if they like the subtitle, usually the next question is, well, give us a couple hundred words overview. And if we can get them through that, next is, tell us why you're the person who should be doing it, another couple hundred words. And if we can get them that far, then chances are, you know, better than even that you can get a, an audition. And then I help the people with the audition process because there are certain questions they almost always ask that if you're not prepared for, can tank your chances. Like they say, well, we love the idea. Now tell me, what are you going to teach our audience? So I have my, my clients prepare a list of six bullet points, you know, action items, able tos, how tos. And then if they get it, then it's a 12 to 18 minute talk, average 15. And we work on that to make sure that when it, when they perform it and it posts, it'll be as many views as possible. And most of these people want to be speakers or they're already speakers and they want to, you know, up their game. Mm -hmm. So along the way, we do speaker marketing coaching. Like, do you have a podcast? No. Well, let's get a podcast. Do you guest on podcasts? Well, you need to do that at least twice a week. Do you have a book? No. Do you have, do you have, do you have, do you, it's all your social media screen, the same thing. So we begin to brand you. And so that's, that's the process. And my program's a little different than the one Amy's in. Mine is, I call it till death do us part program. You and I work on a TEDx until you get one or we both die trying. <laughs> and people seem to resonate with that. So I'm, yes. basically, I'm basically their coach for life at that point. Because mm. um, I want to get them through the TEDx process. And if they want to speak, and most of them do, I want to help them begin to get bookings at a full fee. And I suggest they start at $5,000 plus travel. That's kind of the entry level fee nowadays for speakers. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and you know, a lot of them are speaking for free and this and that. So I try to get them up to that point where they can comfortably say to somebody when asked, it's $5,000 plus travel. Because that's hard to say if you've never, if you've never gotten a check for five grand. I tell them practice in the mirror, 5,000 plus travel, 5K plus travel, five grand plus travel. So when you say it, it just rolls off your tongue. Mm -hmm. So, and I think um, all my long-term clients have gotten a TEDx or two, except for one young woman is killing me. She's brilliant. She's got a great idea. We just haven't found quite the right fit, but all my long-term clients and, and one of my shorter-term clients got the first one she applied for. Again, title of her, she's got a book called Live to Tell because her name is Olivia. Her nickname is Liv. Mm -hmm. And she came very close to slitting her own throat. And so she wrote a book called Live to Tell. So that's the title mm -hmm. of the TEDx. And then below that, the subtitle is Depression is Just a Visitor. Mm. And the committee went gaga over that. And so, uh, again, I think title subtitle has a great deal to do with who gets picked. And I tell my clients right now, a lot of people don't think the TEDx 
talks are happening and many have been postponed, but I've got a dozen links right now to TEDx's in the first two quarters of next year, and they're planning on doing them live. They're taking applications. So it'd be a good time to apply because I'm guessing the numbers are down because people don't think they're even happening. So that that's a, that's a TEDx. And I got a little subliminal message behind me here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yes. If you're just listening, he has a big, bright Ted axe in red and white. Screaming. Screaming. Yes. (laughs) So it's, um, it's, and you know, um, there are live events being booked right now. That was my bread and butter for the longest time. And so fortunately I'd I'd already been coaching TEDx. I had a few clients. I thought I need to shift my focus and market the TEDx until, you know, the pandemic eases because Let's say that everybody got cured in January. Well, they're not going to be booking conferences until, I mean, they may book them, but they're not going to be having conferences probably till the fall because there's always a long lead time Mm -hmm. on, you know, big annual conferences. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's, so that's why, that's why the TEDx, you know, pushing the TEDx because I can do it from my home in my bunny slippers. All right. (laughs) Sounds great. So if people wanted to work with you or they want to find you, where do they find you? Do you have a website? Do they find you on social media? That's where I found found you. Yeah, well, I'm in the Witness <laughs> Relocation Program, so they're going to have to call the Justice Department and uh, <laughs> go to the Justice Department website and look for TEDx. Oh, uh, you can go to yourtedxcoach.com, yourtedxcoach.com. If you go there, there's a free PDF titled these six things you can do to kill your chances of landing a TEDx talk. <laughs> six things that you can do that'll just get you thrown in the no pile right away. The things to avoid. Uh, the mental health comedian, the mental health comedian. You, d- you just type that in or you can type the dot com. But because I've worked really hard to brand myself, all my social media is the mental health comedian. Um, it's obviously my website. If you go there and you put an email address in, I'm the books on men's mental health, the four books, I'm voicing them for audible. And so on my website, the mental health comedian, put in an email address. You can download an MP3 of the unabridged a book, me narrating of the first volume of uh, it's called guts, grit and the grind a mental mechanics manual. So it's four and a four hours and change uh, on men's mental health. We have three other books. One's already up on Amazon. Number three should be up shortly. And four will go up. Um, it's kind of a chicken soup for the soul format where you have 12 men, each one has a different issue that men struggle with. And then they tell, they tell how they're coping. Cause we'd surveyed men and said, you know, what kind of advice would you want in the book? And they said, look, we want real men with real problems and real coping strategies. Mm-hmm. So that's why we chose to have each one tell a story and there are 12 guys in each book. And it's not just mental health struggles. It could be bankruptcy. It could be, you know, caring for an older parent or, uh, um, you know, a child with special needs, something where they've, they've struggled mightily and this is how we're coping. So. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast today and (laughs) for, (laughs) it's been very much fun. And, um, um, you know, also, you know, on the serious side, um, great advice. And well, I'm, I'm wagering Kimberly and next time I'll let you talk when we do the podcast. Um, the, yeah, somebody goes, man, you're like a pull start lawnmower. You, you pull that cord as long as it's got gas in it, you just keep yakking. Um, it's conceivable that somebody listening to the podcast right now leaned in when they, when they heard me tell the story about get it fixed by a new one or I could just kill myself. 
that they may not have realized that they had that that chronic suicidality is a thing, has a name, and they're not alone. So it is conceivable. And I hope when that happens, we steer them far enough off the path of suicide, they'll live a normal life. And from the emails and DMs I've gotten from people who are in that situation, it seems that is the case. You know, finding out you're not alone is a piece of advice. People always ask, I've got a friend who's depressed, what do I say? First of all, initially, don't say anything. Just actively listen. Just co-sign whatever nonsense they're going through. Oh, and I, I, I think if I haven't sent you my social media links and so forth, I will. In there is my phone number, my cell number. And every keynote I do, I put the cell number up on the screen. And I tell the audience, look, if you're suicidal, call the suicide prevention lifeline or text the text line 741-741. If you're mentally ill and have a really bad day, call a crazy person and here's my phone number. And people call about themselves, about a loved one. It's 858-405-5653. It'll be in the show notes. And you're welcome to call. You know, then people don't call all the time, you know, but occasionally somebody will call and say, look, my roommate in college, I've been reading his Facebook timeline and it just sounds dangerous to me will you take a look and i look and sure enough so then we strategize what do you do mm-hmm. so yeah feel free to call if you're having a bad if you're having okay. a bad day uh talk to a crazy person all right well thank you so much for that so before we finish today i have one last question oh no yes i'm, I'm married but i like the way you think okay <laughs> What is your best advice on living an incredible, amazing life? I would say you need to cast about to find your purpose and your passion. And you know what, Kimberly, I've discovered is there are people who never even considered that they could make a decision like that. They never thought it was an option. When I fly with people on plane, I always ask them what they do. And, uh, Oh, you're an attorney. Do you like that? And here's the answer. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you, don't have to be a, you don't have to be a psychologist to know that's a little bit, you know, uh, qualified. Mm-hmm. So what I do is I say to them, well, what if I could wave a magic wand and you could do anything you wanted and still make a living? What would it be? And man, they light up. Almost everyone has something they're passionate about, but they've never, it's almost like, I'm giving them permission to give voice to the thought, hey, maybe I could do that. So my favorite mm-hmm. one is a woman's flying next to me. She, she sets up exhibit halls at conventions. And I ask her, do you like that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, if I go wave a magic wand, I said, I said, if you quit that job, I mean, does your husband make enough money so you guys can get by? She goes, yeah. I said, okay. So if I wave, go wave a magic wand and you could actually make money doing whatever it is you want to do, what would it be? And I cannot remember what you told me, but a year later, I got an email. She goes, Frank, you probably don't remember me. We flew next to each other. I used to set up exhibit hall, whatever, for conferences. And you said to me, what would you do? And she goes, I did it. <laughs> I, I quit the setup job for conferences. I'm doing exactly what I want to do. So I think it's important that we give people permission to at least begin thinking about, and of course, now let's give them an action item because people would say, well, that's great, Frank, but how do we make that happen? I recommend you begin whatever that is as an avocation, you know, a side hustle, keep your job, keep your mm-hmm. medical benefits, 
but start doing that on the side just to get a taste and see if that's really what you want to do. And if it is, then slowly but surely, you know, don't, don't give up your day job, as they say in show business, mm-hmm. slowly but surely work your way to the point where you can make the jump. And I'm telling you, once you've aligned yourself with your purpose and your passion, the universe, again, is going to go, oh, thank the Lord you finally got here. Well, let's see if we can't make this work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that does happen. Um, I'm one of those people doing that right now. After we're done talking here, I will go see a day of patient self. And then I'll have another podcast tonight. Yeah. So- oh Lord. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We're well, talking I, at like seven in the morning, my time right now. So, yeah. And I find that, you know, again, I don't, I, I wake up eager to begin. I mean, there are days because of my mental illness, I have trouble getting out of bed, but I wake up eager in the morning to get back at it because it's, it doesn't seem like a job so much mm-hmm. as just what I'm supposed to be doing. Yeah. So yeah. it's and that's yeah, a beautiful it's, thing. Yeah, so that's the power of your podcast is maybe we've given some people who are listening today permission to, to begin thinking about, well, you know what? It, by the way, I've got a client who does is going to do a TEDx talk on individuation. And the, it's called individuation, individuation Now, subtitle, what if who you are really isn't who you are? Mm-hmm. Again, to get people to think, I could change, I could do something else. Yeah, because a lot of us live up to other people's expectations for a great deal of time. Mm-hmm. And there's something else we want to be doing. But we, you know, people, again, don't always have that thought that that's a possibility. And he he hit it at about 40. He was a banker, didn't want to be a banker, but his mom wanted him to be, his wife wanted him to be. And so he was, and he just finally got fed up and thought, no, that's, this is not who I am. And by, by the way, his wife divorced him. His mother never spoke to him again when he left banking. So there can be collateral damage or more than your listeners, but he's happier now than he's ever been because he's doing what he's, he's following his purpose and his passion. And, and it's going to make a great passion, by the way, is the key, I believe, to a great TEDx talk. If you can't, and if you're not inspired, you can't inspire other people. So I think when he does his individuation talk, there'll be people who are looking at go, I can choose. <laughs> oh my Lord. So. All right. Well, thank you so much, Frank. And, My pleasure. Uh, yeah. I, I don't get up in the morning at four o'clock for everybody, Kimberly, but this is so important because, you know, if more people chose, you know, more people figured out their purpose and their passion, the world would be a much better place. It really would. All right, Frank, well, we'll talk to you again soon. Thanks, Kimberly.